Hey friends, have you ever discovered something was missing for your life that you didn't even know that you needed? Our guest today says that he discovered beauty in uh, some interesting context and then it led him to a career as a creative. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 337, Kent Sanders and the beauty of the written word. Well, hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted that you've downloaded this episode. I know that there are so many podcasts out there. Everybody's got one, right? Actually, that's not true if you look at the numbers, but it feels like people do, and you have a lot of options. So if you downloaded this, thank you. Do me a favor, if you would, just let a friend know. Just say, hey, I've been listening to this show. I think you'll be encouraged by it as well. Maybe you know a friend who's a writer. This will be a great episode for you to share with them. By the way, if you want to, go to halfwaytherepodcast.com support the show. You can click that Patreon button, which is just a way for you to contribute a little bit to help keep the show running. There's a lot of expenses people don't know about with, with podcasting, and I'm grateful to my friends who help support the show uh, there as well every single uh, month. So I, that that is helpful. So maybe, maybe that could be you. Maybe God's leading you to do that. If he is, uh, go ahead and uh, hit that button there. At halfway there podcast.com. Okay, let's dive into our conversation today. Uh, he's, a, he's a new friend, but we're getting to know each other well. And I am excited to hear some of his story for Halfway There. He's a ghostwriter who helps leaders grow their impact and influence through books and other content. He hosts the Daily Writer podcast. You know, I love my podcasters. And he has his own community uh, called the Daily Writer Club. It's a membership community that helps writers build. The, a business with their skills, which I think is really important. And that's so key to think of it as a business, not just a craft. Our guest is Kent Sanders. Kent, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to have you on. We've, we've, uh, I mentioned we've, we've been getting to know each other because we did this like last week for the Christian Podcaster, my other show, which yeah. I heard great feedback on. So I appreciate you doing that. Awesome. Uh, Broad Strokes uh, is the kind of you're, you're a writer and you serve writers, but give us a little more about who you are and where God has you right now. Well, I started off in my career actually as a worship pastor. I did that that job, that career for about eight years or so, right out of college. And then I transitioned into going back to the same the same small Christian college where I went as a student in 2004, which, gosh, that's almost 20 years ago now that I think about it. Holy, holy <laughs> Don't mackerel. think about it too hard. This is uh, part of the problem with being our age. <laughs> yeah, and then I transitioned into going back to the same school and running our music and worship program. I did that for about 10 years. And then I transitioned into a different role at the school where I was teaching more communications and arts and writing and things like that. And then while I was doing that, I started building a side business and I was doing podcast show notes and articles and blogs and stuff like that, writing my own books and content as well. I'm doing a podcast, all that kind of morphed over the following few years into what I'm doing now, which is my bread and butter really is ghostwriting books for primarily business clients and people who have a story to tell. But then I also, of course, as you mentioned, I do a podcast called the Daily Writer Podcast, and it, it is a daily show. And then I run the community, which is the Daily Writer Club. Pretty much everything in my life revolves around writing, creating content, helping other writers, those yep. kinds of things. I love that. Uh, super powerful and is much needed, I think, because it's a world sometimes that's hard to navigate 
right? For people. There's a lot lot of places to get hung up, I think. Uh, So that's good. Well, I want to talk about your story and go back into it. And I really especially want to hear those moments where God, you felt nudged, you led you, spoke to you, whatever those, those are. Um, Where, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in a small town in southeastern Missouri called Potosi. It's actually named after a mining town in Bolivia. I'm sure it's not pronounced Potosi. You know, that's like a very Missouri way of saying it. Yeah. But um, yeah, that it was an old, I think it was an old French town or, or something back in the day. And um, yeah, it's about 90 minutes south of St. Louis. So it's a very, very small town. That's where I grew up out in the woods. You know, we lived in a double wide trailer surrounded by the woods, lived next to my grandparents. Oh, wow. I loved it. I loved growing up in the woods. It was an absolute blast. Uh, was that a Christian family? What was it like for you? What was that? What was that like? My dad was not a Christian when I was growing up. My mom is the one who took me and my older brother to church. We were really, really involved in church. In fact, the two, probably the two biggest male influences in my life in terms of my faith when I was a kid were my older brother. His name is Don. And also our pastor at the church, his name was Rick. And it was a little church, about 75 people. And I think honestly, and this is, this says nothing about large churches at all, but I can vouch for the fact that I've, I've known a lot of small churches that have produced a lot of really high quality people, you know, like just because it's a small church doesn't mean it has Mm -hmm. a small impact just because it's a large church doesn't necessarily mean it has a large impact. It really has to do with relationships and pastor at our church was just an amazing guy, had a radically huge impact on my life, as well as did the pastor who followed him and our volunteer youth leader was a guy who was a state trooper as well. Um, so I was just surrounded by people who I think really cared about mm-hmm. me. I was a part of a good youth group and that just, that had a radical impact on the direction of my life. Yeah. Okay. Well, give me an example of, of a moment when, you know, some of these great mentors, which I'm really glad to hear that you had, like what, when they kind of pointed you in the right direction or maybe gave you some encouragement that you needed at the time. Boy, that's a great question. There's really no specific instances that come to mind, but I can think of just a lot of little things. For example, there was a thing, I don't know if you're familiar with this program called Bible Bowl. No. It was a thing years ago, I think it still is, it might still be a thing, where kids compete in these tournaments based on their Bible knowledge. And every year they would have sort of a theme, like it would be the book of Genesis one year, or the book of Exodus, or book of Matthew or something. And you would study, 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 study. And then you would go to these tournaments where you would get quizzed on, on knowledge from those books. And you would have what was called a buzzer board. looked like a suitcase. (laughs) There was a company that made these and it would have these little buzzers that there was like six of them, I think. And they were all attached to kind of the central wiring in this briefcase. And then you would bring that to these tournaments. And as soon as you had the answer, you would hit the buzzer and you would answer either uh, you would reply with an answer that was correct or incorrect. And, and it would just be this competition. And it was actually really fierce. I remember there was a <laughs> church in South County here in St. Louis that they were kind of like our arch rivals and they had people on their team who always, they almost always beat us. You know, even though we tried really, really hard, they almost always beat us. So that was something really fun that I did as a kid. And we would have Bible Bowl sponsors. You know, these were adults who would, once or twice a week, they would work with us on memorizing things and quizzing us and all that kinds of stuff. And I remember that our pastor from the church, 
he would drive us from that little town to St. Louis in his, in his personal van up to these competitions. Ironically, it was at the school where I used to teach, which was called St. Louis Christian College. And he would just drive us up there and he would drive us to, to church camp and he would drive us all over the place. And as a kid, I don't think you really appreciate the sacrifices that mm. adults around you are making. And now I look back at that and I go, oh my gosh, like he was spending his own personal money on gas and transportation. And, and I think when you get older, you begin to realize these people really, they really made a sacrifice. And then you look around at your own life and you think, okay, am I doing the same thing for other, for other younger people in my life? Yeah. So it wasn't really any one specific thing. It was a whole host of hundreds and hundreds of little things that, that adults around me in different ways that they were investing into my life. Yeah. I love that. That is super powerful. I think it's a, it's easy to look at um, sometimes the things that you do with maybe a little bit of skepticism when you're a kid, right? When you're, but you're right. That perspective of knowing that, Hey, this person gave up part of their weekend to, to yeah. take you someplace, which they didn't have to do. Right. And honestly, maybe didn't right. want to do, but right. they, but they were happy to help you, which is, is really good. I love that spirit of gratefulness. I think that's really powerful. Okay. So with your own personal interactions with God, like, do you, did you have a time when you gave your life to Christ and maybe not, that doesn't happen always. And I get that. Uh, or was there a time when your faith sort of became your own and it started to, to become, you know, something something you were taking more seriously or adopted, you were adopting on your own? Yeah, I was 12 years old and I was at church camp one summer. I forget what grade that would have been, sixth grade, fourth, fifth grade. I don't yeah, know. something like that. But I was 12. I do remember that. And I remember it really specifically. And I'm not like an emotional, like a naturally emotional person. I tend to process things by thinking. Like if somebody asks me, okay, Kent, how are you feeling about this? I would tell you what I'm thinking about it. I can't really articulate my feelings because I don't really trust my feelings a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I think our, our emotions are lying to us most of the time. You know, like, you know, about an hour ago, I was working on a client book and my emotions were telling me, hey, I need to go to the convenience store and and get a Coke or something. You need to take a nap. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I'm like, okay, that's what what my emotions want me to do. Doesn't mean that's what I should do. So I don't always trust my emotions. But in that particular time, it was, I guess, with in our church tradition, they would call it, some people would call it an altar call. Some people would call it an invitation. It's all kinds of different names yep. for it, I guess. But there was this one evening at our evening vesper service where they were, they issued an invitation to, to accept Christ and be baptized. And for whatever reason, I just felt a strong pull to step out of the pews that night and walk forward. Not something I'd planned to do really, but some of the the counselors and youth leaders that particular week at church camp had talked to me about making a decision for Christ. And I had, I never really thought about it that much. I was involved in church, but it, it just wasn't something that I ever, had ever really pulled the trigger on. Um, I, I think probably because I'm the type of person who's wired to really process a decision before he makes it. And for some reason, I just hadn't really made that decision. But I stepped forward that night and made my confession in front of the whole group and was baptized later that night. And that was kind of the beginning of my, yeah. I guess my formal spiritual journey in many ways. Yeah. I love that. Um, those, those moments are really important, I think. So what, so where'd you go from there? And it sounds like you had some great mentors around you at your church. I did, did that. So where'd that lead you and how, how did that, uh, as you were say growing through high school and 
maybe college? Like what was, what, what did your development and discipleship look like in those seasons? I don't know that a lot happened during high school necessarily. I was a kid who was really involved in band, choir, theater, those kinds of things. I would say in many ways that was kind of in terms of the things that I was really pouring my emotions and energy into, that was probably my religion in some ways, as far as the things that I was really thinking about the most. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that I really necessarily grew a lot during high school because I didn't really have any significant challenges. I think you have to have a lot of challenges. The more challenges you have, the more opportunities you have to grow. If you don't have any challenges, it's kind of hard to grow because you're not motivated to, or there's nothing prompting you to, to do something, to want to grow more. But it was really in college where I, I feel like I started to grow a lot more. I began to travel with a music team in college. I did that for three years, actually. Almost every weekend during the school year, we would go out to different churches. We would perform these concert, concerts and lead worship and things like that. Uh, go to church camps sometimes, that type of thing. And I was surrounded by a group of, even though it was a small school, a group of professors and other mentors who just had a radical impact on me. I felt very cared for because I had, I had two or three older guys who really invested time into me and also two or three professors who I was really close to. In fact, one of them performed our wedding oh, wow. right after we graduated. So I feel very fortunate. I went on, you know, some mission trips and things like that. One summer we spent in Ukraine, which um, yeah. of course I, I little did I know that summer that, you know, 25 years later, there would be a war with Russia and Ukraine. Right. For somebody Nobody would have known that, but um, that that actually that experience of going overseas for a summer had a really significant impact on my view of the world. I think on my openness to the world and and just having that that experience is really really good for me. So probably like a lot of people, college was really important. Yeah, I love that. What'd you learn in Ukraine that was re- that was really transformational? Gosh, that's a good question. I think one of the things is just an awareness of people who are different than you, mm-hmm. who have different traditions. Even even Christians, people of faith, they have different ways of doing things. Obviously, the language is different. Some of the food is different, even though there's a lot of things that are the same, pretty much, because it's it's still Eastern Europe. Um, honestly, the hardest the hardest adjustment was not spending a summer there. The hardest adjustment for me was coming back to the U.S., being really excited about how I had felt God working in my life and the things, seeing the things that God had done for us that summer, and then coming back to the U.S. and just sort of feeling the complacency of American culture and being excited because, wow, I just had this life-altering experience. And then, you know, you would see people you hadn't seen since the spring, maybe other students, and Oh, what'd you do this summer? Oh, we spent the summer overseas on this really cool mission trip. And you have a five minute conversation and then they're kind of done with it. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, that really struck me. And I, I couldn't tell you any particular conversation that sort of rattled me, but I do remember that experience of feeling like I came back to, oh, I feel like I'm, I've really changed, but things around me have not really changed. And I, I, I didn't really know what to do with that. And maybe that's what happens anytime that people go overseas for a while, or they have some kind of life-altering experience in some other location, then when you come back to your normal routine and your normal place that you live, you feel kind of discombobulated because you have changed, but you're going back into a situation where they know you as the one person, 
but you mm. feel like you become somebody different. Yeah. And that can be challenging. Can't it? Like it, that can really be. Yeah. Yeah. So were you during those seasons, were you, were you leading worship and how'd you end up working at, at churches? What, how'd that go? So I actually went to college to be a preacher. That was the only kind of vocational ministry that I really oh, yeah. knew of. Right. That was the only thing really. Right. Especially, that was the only thing. Especially if you were in small churches, right? That was just the kind of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing that I knew. And I felt a very strong pull to going to vocational church ministry. Never for a second really considered anything else. I just felt this is what I'm supposed to do. And that was that. So that's what I went to do in college. Well, then the more that I was involved in college, of course, the more that I saw there are other opportunities for other kinds of roles. If you want to work at a church like music or education or counseling or whatever else. So my senior year, this was, gosh, just a few weeks before we were supposed to graduate. My wife and I, or my fiance at the time, we were both going to graduate at the same time. This was 1996. And we weren't sure what we were going to do. I was at the time preaching at this little tiny, tiny church in Southern Illinois on the weekends, a church of like 25 people or something. My sermons were horrible. I didn't enjoy preaching. I wasn't very good at it, but I just, I just thought, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I just need to learn to kind of enjoy it, I guess, or learn to be better at it. And then this opportunity came for, for us to go interview at this church in Northern, in Northern Illinois. And the role would be for me as the worship pastor and my wife as the children's director. And we went and interviewed at that church the summer after we graduated. And it was like, we walked in and it was like, we were home. We knew we were supposed to be there. And it was a wonderful seven or eight years that we spent there. Nice. So I, I didn't, I sort of fell into the music side of it, I guess, in, in some ways, but I, I know that's where I was supposed to be because I was way more interested in music and the arts than I was in preaching. Yeah. Which is great. That's good that you found that, uh, <laughs> those opportunities, right? I feel really, really fortunate. I'm not really sure what we would have done if that one professor had not gone on that one trip up to that church. It wasn't even a supporting church. That's the crazy thing of the college. He had gone up there because he knew their missions committee and he found out they were looking for these two positions. He was like, hey, I know the perfect two people for you. So that's that's how that all happened. Mm. So I think like a lot of things in life, there was one key conversation between a couple of other people that resulted in something that changed the whole trajectory of your yeah. life. Yeah. Friends, did you catch that? Because I think this is a key point. I think sometimes when we're looking for the hand of God in our life, we're looking for the big mile markers, right? But sometimes it's the network, it's the people that you know, and sometimes it's, it is. it's subtle and you don't even know, you know, but it's why we call it Providence, right? It just, it looks like it's just these little nudges here and there, but it led you to some place that uh, that you were really grateful to be and that where you probably developed, uh, you know, in that season, right? Oh, absolutely. It was a, it was a great experience. I loved working at that church. I mean, it had its ups and downs like any normal ministry thing, but I, I felt like I got, I got really lucky because there was a, a youth pastor there who was a mentor to me. He helped me a lot. And the senior pastor was very easy to work with. I had a very supportive team of musicians and, uh, sound people and all that stuff that I was working with. And there was really never any significant conflict of any kind, at least not with me. Um, it was just a very chill atmosphere. Yeah. 
you know, and I, I think that's kind of unusual in the church world. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you know, have you had any other, were there any other significant moments uh, with the Lord or, or moments that you look at, experiences that you have with God that you look back at, uh, maybe during that season, maybe not, that that kind of really were shaping for you and, and le- either led you on the way or just developed the way that you see the world? Yeah, for sure. And th- this is probably going in a different direction than what you're intending, <laughs> but I'll share okay. it anyway because it's part of my journey. And I've talked about this in other venues before somewhat, Um, but there was a period in my late 20s and early 30s where I felt like I just was very, very lost. And I I don't know if I would say that I lost my faith because I feel like that's kind of a dramatic way of framing that, but I was very confused and I I wasn't sure what I believed anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's a very frustrating place to be when you're a pastor and yeah. then also, while I'll if say. you're a Christian college professor, when you're supposed to be teaching and leading these students, but inside you feel like, do I even believe all this stuff anymore? Like, is this really who I am? Am I buying all this? That's a very difficult place to be. So I went through a period of a few years where just internally, and I never really told anybody this, I was really seeking. And so I started reading a lot of books about science and faith. Lee Strobel's books actually were enormously helpful, particularly the case for a creator. I actually was way more influenced by that book than his book, The Case for Christ. I mean, obviously that book's very good too, but the whole thing for me was, okay, if, if you look at the whole scientific picture and you know, how old is the universe and is, is the book of Genesis literally, literally true and all these kind of questions that many people have, once you start diving into that, then you're eventually going to run to the question, okay, how do you how do you reconcile what people believe the Bible says about some of those things with what science seems to say? And I couldn't merge those two things in my mind for the longest time. And I can't really articulate how it got resolved necessarily, other than I just, I think I just got tired of kind of fighting. And I just came to a place where I was okay with the mystery. Mm. And I I had let go of, I think, my more naive ideas of maybe what my faith should be or trying to have all the answers. And I just came to embrace the idea that there are a lot of things I don't know, but I have felt like God has worked in my life. I felt like he's worked providentially. I've seen God respond to different things, particularly in moments of generosity and giving where like you're tithing. And you don't know where the money's coming from. And then something miraculously happens. Money appears from some odd place. Mm -hmm. There's too many things like that that have happened over the years for me to believe that there's nothing there. Yeah. So I kind of came to a place where I was like, okay, um, I believe there is some kind of um, benevolent force, some sort of intelligent designer or benevolent creator, whatever name you want to put on it. And to me, the the Christian viewpoint makes the most sense. The Bible seems to make the most sense because it's historically accurate. It's historically verifiable. And just as I tried to look at all that with my analytical mind, I just came to the conclusion that, okay, I don't have all the answers. I'm not smart enough to figure all this stuff out. But to me, the the Christian faith is what makes the most sense yeah. to me. And so I, I think it's a very, it was very much a classic a classic case of 
you have this faith that's sort of given to you by others in your younger years, and then you begin to dismantle it as you go through life, and then you reconstruct it in maybe a different way, but in a way that's yours and that's authentic and that's much stronger. I think that's a lot of people's experience. I do too. And so uh, it's, well, I have several questions, but what I hear you talking about is this idea that you had to just go, okay, what is really true? You had to wrestle with the idea of of God being there. I mean, I asked you, like, were there moments that, that really shaped you? And like, yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Because normally I ask about the dark night of the soul because I know that those moments are so important, but they're also very lonely, right? Because we don't seem to talk about them totally. very much. I can only imagine as a pastor going through all that. Was that, was that hard? Was that like a tough, like, how did you find anybody to talk about this with or how'd that go for for you? No, I really never talked to anybody about it, particularly not at my church Yeah, right. because that would be awkward. And it's dangerous, now, also, right? It's, it's, dangerous it's dangerous to your job. Yeah. And I was also going to grad school at the time. I was going to seminary, working on my master of divinity degree, but I got another smaller degree after that. So I was in a seminary for a grand total of nine years and I was going very, very part-time. Yeah. <clears throat> so it took me a while. And, it went, and the MDiv at the school where I was going was like a 90 hour degree. So it took a long time to get through that. It's huge. But yeah, it was, it was a real struggle. And I felt like a fake most of the time, uh, to be honest with you. And I didn't know how to resolve that or how to not feel that way. So I just kind of swallowed it and kept it to myself. Yeah. All the, all the while kind of doing my own study and research and thinking and, and everything. Yeah. Interesting. Which uh, the other thing about it, I think another emotion might've been, uh, you tell me, I'm not trying to put this in your mouth, in your words in your mouth, but is it's a little bit scary, right? Like it's, there's to, totally. to question all of your faith and to go, well, is this true or not? And then, you know, particularly when you're in, when that's your livelihood, you know, it's kind of, yeah, kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's terrifying because you, you sort of feel like every time that you pray in public yes. or every time that you teach about God or every, every time you lead a class session, which was daily, <clears throat> multiple times a day, you just kind of feel like a fraud on some level. Hmm. And then people are, are expecting you to be a mentor and a model and for me, there were many times where I was saying things because I felt like they were what I was supposed to teach or believe. Internally, I'm like, well, you're full of it because you don't actually believe this. But I can't say that because I want to stay employed. <sighs> so you kind of have this this very disconnected, you're almost like two people. Yeah. And I I wasn't, I, I could never really resolve that until I just sort of stopped wrestling and just kind of came to accept this is just what kind of makes the most sense to me. Yeah. And and the, there's mystery. So that's one part that is a part of growing up, right? I mean, I think so yeah. whether spiritually or otherwise, you eventually have to to um accept that you are not in control, right? That you are not you can't know all the things. You just have to accept that some yeah. things just are the way they are. And so you, I hear you saying that. Okay, what did you learn about yourself coming through on the other side of that? Because a lot of times God will take, he'll he'll take some identities away from us that we, you know, that we thought we had to have or we had adopted or been given unbeknownst to ourselves. What did you learn about yourself? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, 
I'm not really sure how to answer that, to be honest with you. I'd have to stop and really yeah. and really think about that. Um, I think part of it is part of part of the journey for me, particularly in those years, when I in let's say my first 10 years of teaching, which would basically was my 30s, more or less. One of the things that I really learned about myself was that I A, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. B, I wasn't um B, I, I had a much smaller view of the world than I realized. And what helped me with that, things like mission trips were really good, but something else that for me was really important. I don't know that this would be important for others as much, but for me, one of the classes that I taught was, was called Theology and History of Worship. <clears throat> and in that class, the way that I designed it is I didn't want to do just lectures and classroom stuff, is I wanted to take students to different places here in the St. Louis area where they could experience different ways of expressing their faith. So one of the places we went to was a place called the Central Reform Congregation. It's down in the Central West End of St. Louis. It's a Jewish community. And so we would go there for a Friday night Shabbat service every time I taught the class. And it was, it was so cool because they were the most welcoming people I think I've ever experienced in a community of faith. Love that. They fed us and they would have like the rabbi stay afterwards after the service and they would answer all the crazy arcane questions that our students had about the Jewish faith. They had this huge Torah scroll up front that they would show us. And it was really cool. And for me, that was that was really a great experience because it expanded my viewpoint of, okay, how and where is God working in the world? Because many of us who grew up in an evangelical church, sometimes you kind of get the sense that people in your little group are are kind of thinking, we're really the only ones sort of doing it right. 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 Then when you get to to know people who are who maybe are different than you yep. or who are experiencing that in different ways, you really come to, come to understand, okay, my view of the world is pretty small. So we would we went there, which was great. And, and I taught this class many times, so we would go go back there every couple of years. And then we would go to a Greek Orthodox church. So the church where we went to many times was St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church. Ironically, like two blocks away from the, the Jewish congregation. Oh, yeah. And we would always talk to talk to some of the staff there. They were very welcoming. And then we would also go to the Cathedral Basilica, which was actually right in the same neighborhood uh, here in St. Louis. The Cathedral Basilica is this amazing, beautiful Catholic church. And, and a basilica basically means it's a specially designated uh, Catholic church. I'm sure you're, any Catholic listeners that you have probably could correct me on the nuances of that. But essentially, that's my understanding of it. And it's cool because the interior of it is a Byzantine style. So it's like filled with the, all these cool mosaics. The outside of it is Romanesque. So it looks like something out of Italy, basically. And it's just really, really cool. We would we would go to mass and I would prepare the students and walk them through the mass. And here's what you're going to experience. And and no, don't go up front and take communion because you're not Catholic. Right. And, you know, don't, don't disrespect them. They don't like that. that. Kind of a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not cool. And those experiences... Those experiences for me, I think, as well as my students, were really transformative. Mm. And it really, in my own, I would even say those those kinds of experience were really important in reawakening my faith. Oh, interesting. Because I would say my faith started to become more of an experiential thing, more of a mystical thing, 
more a little bit more than it was like an intellectual thing that I had to kind of figure out and understand everything and all the pieces had to fit together. Yep. And I, I've often told people that, okay, if, if reincarnation were true and I could come back as somebody different, I might come back and be Orthodox. Not because of anything theological, really, but because I just, I love the emphasis that the Orthodox tradition puts on tradition and beauty and the arts and the experience of worship, not just the intellectual like understanding of, okay, here I heard another 45 minute sermon and I got to process all this data and I got to act right. And yep. Yep. all these kinds of things that for whatever reason, I'm just wired in such a way that that appeals to me. I think that's really fascinating. So I actually tweeted this this week. There was this thing going around Twitter that was like, this is the denomination I grew up in. This is the denomination I do now. And someday I wouldn't be surprised if I were. Did you see this? And my answer <laughs> is yeah, classic. pretty interesting, right? My answer was, so I grew up evangelical free. Uh, you know, lately we've been not a denominational, but Eastern Orthodox is what I chose as like, I That's could see myself being that uh, for the exact same reasons you mentioned, right? I think yeah. as a person who appreciates beauty and tradition and like rootedness, you almost can't beat the Eastern Orthodox yeah. Church. So the other thing I want to mention and just highlight that you've said to go back to this is that you you had to experience other aspects of your faith, right? You had to actually, yeah. or the Christian stream, as it were, like there were other parts of it Totally. that I think, did you find that that gave you more humility and embrace, ability to embrace the mystery or what, what was it that you found? Maybe you said this already, but what was it that you really were like, Oh, that's transformational. I think it's just the way that I'm wired. Mm -hmm. um, in my tradition, which is basically like the non-denominational Christian church, uh, disciples of Christ kind of tradition, there's a lot of emphasis on understanding and study and knowledge, like which is exactly where the whole earlier I mentioned Bible Bowl, yep. the program that I was heavily involved in as a kid. That's that's a great case study in how my tradition really emphasized knowledge. Right. And I would say indeed in Baptist churches, there's a program called Awana that's kind of it's not the same thing, but it's the same, the same core ideal, yep. which is Bible knowledge. I think a lot of evangelical churches kind of are along the same lines. And there's a good reason for that. It's because knowing scripture is good, you know, right. knowledge can be really, really good. But I I never really realized until I got into my mid-30s, honestly, that I was not really wired. I can never figure out why I was never excited about the doctrinal side of things. I just was never that interested in it. You know, people would have these discussions about, like in, in my tradition, they would have all these discussions about baptism and they would like really dissect Acts 238 and all these other verses. And they would get into these lengthy diatribes and conversations about the nuances of when are you saved and what role does Baptist immersion play in this? And, I was just like, I just don't really care that much. I'm just not interested in this. You know, were they baptized? Did they try and are they trying to follow Jesus? Do they love God? Okay, that's cool with me. Good enough. So yeah, which which kind of irritated some of my friends, I'm sure. But I, I never really realized that I was starving for beauty and I was starving mm. for things that only really the arts can provide, those kinds of things. Uh mysticism, creativity. I was starving for those things, but I didn't really know it until I experienced more of it through this class that I was teaching, ironically, which actually led to in kind of indirectly led to teaching more of those same kinds of classes, like a film class, like a theology, yeah. a film class, 
courses on writing and storytelling and things like that, that were way more fun for me to teach. Are you into the Enneagram at all? Yes and no. Okay. Um, so I, I have a lot of friends who are very much into the Enneagram. I think there's a lot of value to it. I think it has kind of reached a saturation point now where sure. I feel like, I feel like the church has sort of co-opted a little bit yeah. and spiritualized what's not, which didn't really begin as a spiritual tool to my sure. understanding to, to kind of the point where people who are really deeply into it, they'll, they'll just describe, Oh, that's what a five would do. That's what a three would right, do. Right, right, right. You know, I'm kind of like, okay, maybe it's not so helpful to like always be categorizing people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I won't, I won't categorize you then. That's fine. <laughs> well, I'm a five. I mean, I, mean, I, I think it's a great tool. It's well, that's very what I was going to say. My guess was, from what you've discussed is that you're a five, but then you probably have that connection to four, like me, which I'm a four. So I'm, I'm a four with a five kind of, I go the opposite direction. Uh, but, okay. but that beauty, then you're, you're desiring it and you're like, Hey, that's actually that creative yeah. expression. So maybe that's a really good way to segue into you eventually found writing as a thing. So now you're like, make your life as a, as a creative, right? So how did, yeah. how did that, uh, it shared with me like how that came about and then, uh, what you do. Cause I want to ask about the daily writer club so that we can sure. share with people what that, what you do there. Well, how they came about was I was just interested in, in doing podcasting and writing on the side. It was strictly a hobby. I started blogging probably around 2007 or eight or something like that, just for fun. I've always been a writer and I wanted some way to express my thinking and just share ideas about stuff uh, with the outside world. And so I had a, I had m multiple blogs over a period of five or six years, probably. And I wrote pretty consistently. I wrote, I don't know how many, many, many tens of thousands of words, just stuff about worship and theology and the arts and movies and whatever I was fatherhood and whatever else I was thinking about. And then around 2013, I got into podcasting because I listened to a ton of podcasts. And this was back in the day where you, you had to plug your iPod into <laughs> your computer. Yes. Have it sync with iTunes. And it was like this real laborious process. And then I got like the first video iPod and I thought, oh, my mind was blown, you know, well, you can have video on this thing. <laughs> so that was really I cool. remember. I, in fact, I think in a drawer right about down here, I've got my first video iPod. Like I, I've, wow. I still got it. I intend to hold on to it and sell it for a million dollars someday. That's my <laughs> plan. <laughs> Would be worth something when they're all. Does gone. it still work? Yeah, it does. It's great. Wow. Uh, but you're right. You, That's crazy. Okay, so you discovered it. You started. You started doing this, and this eventually became your job. And so, like you, I know that you just uh, uh, wrote a book with was Elvis's brother. I can see it behind you about the sort of experience of of Elvis and his mm -hmm. faith, the faith of Elvis, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed working on that book. And I think sometimes people who have not like really been following my journey, people who don't don't really know me that well, but they're kind of on the periphery of what I'm doing. Um, sometimes they have kind of wondered, okay, how did you end up getting connected with this kind of thing? How did you even get into all this? Because it seems like a total 180 from what I was doing before. You know, because I have my own business now, I do client work, I do podcasting and all this stuff. That's very different than what the typical Christian college professor or pastor does. But the way that I get into that, it was, there was never any time where I did like this hard left turn. It was very, very gradual. It started with me just dabbling into blogging and then podcasting and then writing my own books. 
and then doing a little bit of client work. In 2016, that's when I first started doing that. And I remember getting paid for like my first gig, which is writing podcast show notes for a business leader. And I got that payment and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. I can actually get paid for just doing a little bit of writing on the side. And as a Christian college professor who wasn't making much money, <laughs> right? that like that, re that really made a big difference to me because I remember he would pay, it was 16 episode increments. How much was that anyway? He would, he would do 16 episodes at a time and it was $40 an episode, which was $640. And I was so excited every few months when I would get that $640 from the podcast producer. I was like, oh my gosh, like it's an extra $600. Like this really makes a difference for us. Yeah. So, and then I just began to do more of that kind of a thing. And I really ramped it up, especially because I saw where things, where things were going uh, with the college where I was teaching. Um, in 2015, we had kind of a massive blow up. A lot of people left. Some people got fired. There were several professors that it was a whole range of issues, but they all kind of coalesced into one giant issue, I guess. A lot of conflict and a lot of people left. And it was a really sad situation. And I vowed to myself that the only time I, that I would ever leave the school is if, well, if they fired me, but I wanted to leave on my own terms and in my own way. I saw a lot of people leave badly. You know, you can start off a job mm. really great, but then how you leave a job is how people always remember you. It doesn't matter what you accomplish there. Right. If you leave badly under duress or in this cloud of conflict, that's the way people will always remember you. <clears throat> and I didn't want that to happen to me. So I just vowed to myself I was going to build a business, however long it took me. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I could have done it a lot faster if I would have just listened to my wife and focused on writing. <laughs> and that always right. Instead of you know doing like this silly Amazon FBA business or trying to do business consulting, which I had no business doing in the first place, or about five or six other things. But eventually it just led into ghostwriting books. Um, and I chose ghostwriting books specifically because I would only have to do a few projects a year to make a full-time living. I, you know, I could make as much as I wanted to potentially. The harder I worked and the more yep. the more skilled that I got. And writing books is a very repeatable process. I mean, there, there's only so many ways you can really structure a book. So if you if you can write a great nonfiction book for somebody, you can repeat that with a lot of different people. So to me, writing books was a very simple kind of a thing. And it's also easy to explain to people. Hey, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a ghostwriter, which means I take your story or your framework or your ideas and I write a great book around it that helps you grow your business or share your story or build your legacy, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, that's very easy to explain to people. Yeah. I love that. So that's one of the things that was really appealing about it to me. Okay. Don't be too hard on yourself though. Cause I think the entrepreneur's journey is to try all the things, right. Is, <laughs> yeah. is to try things so and true. find out that they don't work or, or to go, okay, I don't have the passion to make this happen or whatever it is. Um, until you fall into the thing that you're like, Oh, that does work. Although uh, don't tell your wife I said that. Like you definitely, definitely should always listen to your wife. <laughs> oh, the worst one, the worst one was one summer we had somebody in my extended family who was very successful in network marketing. He got into this company that was selling nutrition products and oh no, he was doing really well with it. And I was like, well, I, I could do that. How hard could that really be? Right. My dad loaned me two grand oh boy. to buy into this this thing. They shipped all of this massive products to my house. And it was actually really good products. 
but then I tried the network marketing thing and I just completely failed at it. Like immediately I didn't make any money at it. I actually irritated some people who were close friends. <laughs> I was doing the, the typical, yeah. Hey, you know, let's do this thing and you can blah, blah, blah. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, now that being said, there are people in network marketing who do really, really well and they do it genuinely. I just had no idea what I was doing with it. Right. So I'm really glad that it failed and that it failed fast because that was a motivation to convince me that I need to really focus on my skills. Yes. That is the motto though, right? Fail fast, right? There's a reason, yeah. there's a reason that you do that because you probably learned something about yourself in that process. And that was, you didn't want to do oh, sales. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, gosh, there was a lot of things I learned about 